0: Yeah, yeah.
1: today that the day that we are recording this on it is middle-aged kid middle-aged it is middle. (laughs) well uh, i'm definitely that too (laughs) but it is uh middle it'll middle it's middle kid day basically so today's the day for us all to rejoice about the little the uh, the the middle kids in all your families they say that the uh Firstborn is the leader, they say that the uh, lastborn is the baby of the family, and that uh, that unfortunately means that the middle kid is uh, kind of this undefined role in the family, and uh, nobody knows what to do with him. And uh, as the middle a- <laughs> aged kid, there I go again, yeah. as That's the middle, middle kid middle of the family, <laughs> I, uh, I know what uh, all those things are like, but hey, here we are. Oh my, I have totally forgotten. And before we get to anything else, of course, we want to say welcome to the Brothers Trek About. Uh, my name is Matt, coming to you from Austin. And as always, coming to you from Houston is my brother Ken. Say hello, Ken. Ailing frequencies are open. Woo-hoo! Here we are talking about Return to Tomorrow. I had a note about why this was named Return to Tomorrow. It was something about... It was in another draft of the script... And it had something to do with some of the weird sex stuff that Dugan had entered into the uh, script. But then they cut it out. So then the line got cut out of the episode. So now Return to Tomorrow has it no other meaning sense. other than, yeah. It sounds science fictiony. Exactly. It sounds good. Let's keep it that way. So I'm going to start you right off. I'm going to hit you with a little uh, right out of the gate question here. Do you think I like this episode or not?
0: uh let's see i don't know
1: yeah well i'll surprise you and say that i did (laughs) okay good (laughs) it's weird you know it's the kind of episode that i wouldn't necessarily um love or latch on to uh but it's not too slow the uh the tension the tension of are these people on the up and up or not, you know, right. it kind of follows all the way through. That's a nice thing that helps it going. Spock, you know, uh, or I should say Letter Nimoy, his yeah. his thing in this movie, or in this episode is really good as well.
0: Yeah, he really so, gets to open up. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: So, uh, there's a lot of things I really like about this episode. How, how do you feel about it?
0: So, uh, I think it's pretty good. We've just watched a, like, super aliens from another galaxy take over the ship. Mm -hmm. So, I think my biggest objection is its placement in the production order, which, of course, has nothing to do with how they aired it. Yeah. But, you know, had we had one or two totally different kinds of episodes... In between? Yeah, it would have... I think it would have been better, or felt better.
1: Yeah. Yeah, if we would have had a little more space uh, from the from the last episode. I can see that, definitely. I,
0: I did enjoy the, the Nimoy. I yep. thought... Um, of course. You know, I, I liked the the uh, tension that the... You know, I wrote all their names down, and what they mean... Oh. And suddenly, now that I want it, I don't have it. No! Uh, the Sala. Yes. Uh, you know, she had this nice... You know, which wh- how is she going to go? Is she going to go with Sargon? Or yep. is she going to go with Enoch, right? Okay, right. now that I... Because I know what their names actually mean, I uh, I can just remember them. Well, that's good. So, uh, since I brought it up, I will say what their names mean. Love it. All right. So, we have Sargon... And okay. Sargon is the first conqueror you know, in the world. Okay. He's a Mesopotamian guy. He's from just north of, of Sumer. He's an Akkadian. Um, so the Akkadians kind of absorb Sumerian culture. And then he kind of comes south and conquers all of Sumer. Then turns north, conquers the rest of Mesopotamia, holds... Adjacent areas kind of in thrall because, well, he's in control of all of Mesopotamia. And uh, lasts about three generations and then falls apart. So he's the first conqueror, right? Uh, Thessala is a primordial kind of queen of the ocean. So in the same way that, uh, like, Hyperion would be the first sun god she would be married to the first um, sea god. And then after her would come Pontus, and then after uh, him would come Poseidon. And then uh, Enoch is the son of Cain. Okay. So, of course, you've got that hint, but not... I mean, he's not named Cain, because then you'd be like, watch that guy! (laughs) But, uh... He's the son of Cain. Yeah. And of course, uh, so I'm, I'm saying Enoch, and they put the H in front of it, which is a, a common alternate, Enoch uh, or Henoch. Yep. Interesting. So, very mythological. You know, if you're up on your ancient history and mythology, you're like, these names are obvious to <laughs>
1: So in the last of the, uh, oh, I won't say trick questions, the last of the gotcha questions of the, uh, of the uh, opening here, the question I have is, if I were to tell you that there was a, uh, a controversy in the uh, attribution of who wrote this script <laughs> with Gene Roddenberry, <laughs> would you be surprised? <laughs> I would not be surprised. <laughs> Amazing. It's something we'll definitely get into as we get into this episode. So this episode, as it's attributed, is written by John Kingsbridge, and many people think that that was the pseudonym for uh, Gene Roddenberry, but actually is for a writer named John T. Duggan, or Duggan. I'm going with Duggan. Uh, he was the one who wasn't happy with the end of uh, end result of this episode, right. and uh, mostly due to the changes of the religious overtones of this episode. Uh, but yeah, all that we'll get into. Let's just start with the basics here, right? Dugan was a playwright whose first play took off, and then the war happened. After World War II, he went back and he got his master's in uh, fine arts from a Catholic university, no less. And
0: that's he then relevant. got his, what's that? And that's irrelevant. right? Well, especially with uh, with Henock, you would know who that is. Well, not just that, but like his whole controversy with Roddenberry, right? Who's famously got no place for anything, you know, religious in Star Trek.
1: Right. Uh, he then got his doctorate in theater from the University of Minnesota. He then went to University of California at Berkeley and taught there for 25 years until he retired and then started writing for television. <clears throat> as you can imagine, a man this accomplished uh, as this might have a hard time with notes and such. And we know how notes can go on this show. The two, uh, two genes would often run into Dugan at various writers' conferences and awards, award ceremonies and whatnot. Uh, and they finally got around to offering him a slot to write. And he was very excited about it, being a fan of the show. Eventually, it came together with this pitch from Dugan, which Kuhn loved. was uh, not only loved, loved the fact that they were getting Dugan, but also loved his pitch. He did feel, though, that the ideas might have been too vast and needed to be simplified. He also does think that this this episode might not need a second story to help uh, contain it, that there's plenty of ideas and thoughts, which I agree with, right? We look at the last episode where I was constantly saying, like, oh, a B story here might have been nice, or this might have been a good idea, whereas this story somehow manages to sustain itself over the entire 60 minutes, 52 minutes, whatever, without uh, any... uh, B story
0: although it does violate seinfeldian principles
1: <laughs> which is what dare i ask
0: <laughs> you always have a b-story and they, they they uh oh they, they
1: come intersect. together
0: yeah 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 uh, which i i think is one of the features of next generation
1: you think wesley is just dealing with these nanobots that got out of control and by the end of it it's his uh,
0: experiment that saves the day
1: that's right Exactly. After all that. So uh, Gene Roddenberry felt that this episode was interesting, but might not have mass appeal. That there was a way to get some action and adventure involved in it that would help. He thought that kids watching on a Friday night uh, didn't want to see something this heady. So, uh, Coon. So who oh, is saying
0: guys. this? This is Roddenberry? Yeah, that was Roddenberry. who thought that this show was that's too a, heady. That's an unusual turn for Roddenberry. Right. But I He's think apparently- that... He's assimilating some of the network notes he's getting <laughs> right? Exactly weird. Uh, well also too, by this point
1: they're you know a year and a half into making Star Trek. By this point you know he's got to know what works and what doesn't. Uh, so Ronberry asks Kuhn like, hey let's have a sit down with, uh, with Dugan and uh, we can uh, we can get this show under the under the, on the road. but Kuhn was buried in work and needed to get the outline to NBC. So he kind of just tidied it up himself, trying to connect the dots in the best way, thinking that Stan Robertson would then uh, like it. So I wonder it was... if they called him Doogie. <laughs> right, I wonder. <laughs> Old Dugan. So NBC, Stan Robertson swings by the studio and doesn't love the script, but Coon uses uh, Roddenberry's memo to show him in the ways that they know how to improve it. Stan Robertson then writes a memo recapping their meeting, saying that uh, the highly cerebral portions of the story need to be eliminated and the complex nature of the plot needs to be simplified. In a memo written shortly afterwards, Robert Justman says the same thing. He says, I think I like this treatment, but then again, I'm not sure because although the writing is very fine, half the time I don't understand it. The first draft was written. DC uh, Fontana says about it. Overall, I like the script very much, although there's not much action. I believe the script is interesting and the relationships of the characters will work very well. The roles delineated will provide a challenge to our actors' abilities, which should heighten their interest in this piece and their subsequent performances. Robert, uh, Robert Justman, on the other hand, thinks that this draft uh, was bananas. Why did Kirk uh, even follow this voice there in the first place? Because the dare, you know, that ends up in the final draft wasn't there yet. Again, adjustment idea. He also believes that Spock uh, acts too quickly to trust the folks on the planet as a because he doesn't feel like there's enough logical motivation for Spock to buy into what's happening. In an earlier amendment, uh, I also
0: think having j- just done the, I'll turn your crew into crystals if you don't cooperate right coercing them would have felt like well we're just redoing that last episode Mm
1: -hmm. that's fair that's fair so in an earlier memo dugan had jokingly said that he was a very sensitive writer so coon makes a joke back to him in this memo about being a very sensitive producer then writes now the cop-outs are out of the way let's turn to the script he then goes to write 16 pages of notes for dugan You can see where this is going. It takes another month before they hear from Dugan. But it's not another draft. They get this letter that starts off by saying, Frankly, your memo sent me into a prolonged and profound state of shock. Recovering, somewhat, I have been thinking about it and wondering how to respond without seeming argumentative or peevish. Although it isn't the primary cause of my shock, I might point out that it strikes me unfair to the writer to wait until after the first draft to ask for changes to basic concepts and elements which were clearly spelled out in the original outline. I merely suggest that we'd be a hell of a lot further ahead if the objections uh, in referenced above had been voiced before I started writing the teleplay, which I think is personally very interesting because it does seem that sometimes some of the biggest changes that happen to the script are after the first or sometimes even second draft are written. So it's funny that we get this guy who is, you know, obviously very accomplished in his things as, as a playwright and as a, as a uh, you know, theater guy who's saying like, hey, why is why are you waiting till now till uh, I get this done?
0: So let me run something by you and see how, how you as a theater guy respond, right? Okay. I suspect that part of their process involved, so, you know, first they kind of hash out the story and then they have to figure out how are we gonna shoot this? How is the audience gonna see our characters? How are we gonna stage it? What is the audience gonna see? Where are the beats in the in the performance? Now that we're thinking about the staging, yeah. and that's when they start saying, "Oh wait, we gotta start messing stuff up," because mm-hmm. they they do seem to like take a story for quite a while before they're like, "Wait, this isn't working. We gotta we gotta mess with it." Yeah. Well you know it's funny for I think
1: I think you're exactly right because there's my next note to me it says creative creativity is a fickle thing right because I find sometimes especially in my writing that once I've gotten through the first draft I really find what I was trying to say what was the what was the real point what was the hook of all of this then with that in mind I can go back and write the next draft of said thing right so I'm sure it's similar in this case where you know we have a guy who's or, or not a, a guy sorry We have a production team who now is like, okay, now that I see this on its feet in my head, you know, now that we're talking about because one of the things they complained about was like there were too many sets when they go down on the planet. Right. And they're like, well, we don't want to build three sets for, you know, what's just basically happens on the planet. Why can't we just do one or we'll have a little alcove, which is what they end up doing. So, yeah, I mean, I think that that is the big thing. It's 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 hard because sometimes you just. In, until you see it in writing until you see it all in front of you where you're like yeah this doesn't work and i i, I just don't feel like this is happening in the script however you could do this in the same letter uh dugan counters crew that's a lot of c's there to say dugan counters coon's critical notes with seven pages of his own and this he not only picks apart some of coon's coon's grammar but Coon also ha- mentions like, hey, can we, get some ar- can we get rid of some of this like weird sex stuff that you've written because it's really going to annoy NBC. Dugan's reply to this is, what's wrong with sex? Propagation and perpetuation? I understand uh, it's the strongest drive of man. I even think the audience has heard about it. And there's nothing dirty about it. Let's all grow up. So enough memos, okay? Please don't anybody there respond with a memo to me. I will, accordingly, await your phone call and not your memo. So, not surprisingly, he's like, I don't want 17 more pages of stuff. Just give me a call and we can hash this out like men. Coon, however, waited a few weeks before calling Dugan. Between mounting creative differences with Roddenberry, particularly concerning comedy elements in the series, and dealing with unargumentative writers like John T. Dugan, Coon wanted out. Shortly after making the call to Dugan, Coon resigns. It takes another three months before Dugan gets the second draft, received in October. By then, John Meredith Lucas is sitting in the producer's chair. Fontana still liked the story and felt that some good could come from it, provided that they got busy rewriting it. Stan Robertson agreed with Justman over the questionable humor. Beyond this, the NBC man found the material from this former Catholic University teacher to be, quote, sacrilegious. So it's Stan Robertson who finds the, the... the story sacrilegious. In Dugan's script, Sargon tells the Enterprise Landing Party how, after this world became uninhabitable, two of its people, a man and a woman, left our world uh, and got lost in space on some unhabited, uninhabited planet very much like their own. This planet was Earth. Yes, Captain, Sargon says, the man and woman from your planet were your Adam and Eve. Kirk, however, does not even react to this. He merely uh, and immediately asks more questions about the other receptacles and the other potential survivor. Robinson wrote this to Lucas on uh, in November saying, the basis of this story is a philosophical premise which seems to be faulty and not solidly founded. It has been our experience that the most successful Star Trek episodes have been those stories which are based on action-adventure ideas to which philosophical points of views or moral views were added as underlying or secondary themes to telling our story. He goes on later in the script to say, The plot point, which is important to our story, as now written, that Adam and Eve were the original implanters, in our opinion, is not well-founded logically, dramatically, or taste-wise. If, for instance, we buy the writer's premise about Adam and Eve then without carrying the position through to an objective conclusion as the writer has not done we are openly and without benefit being sacrilegious this as you understand could and would offend a large segment of our audience on the other hand if we do not utilize the adam and eve device then an important plot point be, uh, is meaningless in conclusion it would be our recommendation at this juncture that this script in its present form that we postpone its production indefinitely interesting right cuz it's funny cuz uh i mean obviously it gets changed in the in the in the next draft of the script but it's interesting it's also, that it, uh, robertson takes the stand go ahead
0: yes yeah, so they do a lot more of this in next generation
1: mm-hmm.
0: not only do they have the preservers or whatever uh you know entities um i guess they really only hinted at the the preservers um you know seed all these planets with the same DNA. Mm -hmm. Um, The Chase, is that what it's called? The Next Generation episode. So, I mean, they do have stuff like this. But I also think that by uh, the Next Generation, they wouldn't be so concerned about being sacrilegious. Yes,
1: on TV. Uh, But at this point, uh, the show... Uh, you know, just got that back order of eight episodes, and they really needed to get some more scripts up and running. So this is when Roddenberry took over. And it's in this uh, rewrite where the idea that maybe it wasn't Adam and Eve, uh, and maybe it was instead part of Vulcan's prehistory, where all this came from. That's where uh, Roddenberry writes in all that new stuff. Uh, The guys at the, uh, the Lady and the Man at the DeForest institute uh, john pierce and peter sloman had this to say about uh about star trek we realized that they occasionally were getting writers who didn't know what they were talking about and we had <laughs> right and we had a certain level of contempt for those writers who blew it gene roddenberry was a wonderful wonderful fellow most of the time you get the concept that we're dealing in a product that, and that's all we do we crank out sausages And and are then stuck into your television, and then they show up on your screen. But Gene cared not only about the quality of the production values, but he also cared about the quality of the thinking that went into the scripts. That is very rare nowadays, he says. So uh, while undertaking this rewriting, uh, Roddenberry added his name to the title page, taking the teleplay by credit. Dugan was now downgraded to story by credit. Roddenberry was justified in doing this, according to Cashman. He says uh, the premise, the characters' names, and approximately 50% of the plotting were all uh, retained from Dugan's script, but every line of dialogue had been changed. Therefore, while it was mostly Dugan's story, it was now all of Roddenberry's writing. One of the most successful elements in Roddenberry's script, again, according to Cushman, was barely present in, uh, barely present in Dugan's is the amusement that Hanok conveys while Spock's body, allowing the normally non-smiling Spock to grin and even flirt. Also in Roddenberry's version, Sargon and Thalassa, while over-serious and somewhat pompous, are at least portrayed as less ignorant when it comes to Henox's intentions.
0: Yeah, so Sargon is clearly the Paragon character. Right. Right. So uh, one way to interpret this whole script is that it's really Osiris, Isis, and Set right? That Sargon is Osiris. He is the founder of Egypt. He is the embodiment of tradition and, like, the right way of doing things. Um He, of course, is then set upon by his brother, Set. And uh it's up to Isis to solve the problem. We don't have a Horus character here. But, you know, that's the dynamic that we have, these three uh, in a sense, that you rival brothers and then um, the wife of Sargon, Isis or Thessala, who has to uh, save Sargon.
1: Mm-hmm. Interesting.
0: So I think it kind of makes sense that he's kind of a paragon. He, he inspires you to goodness rather than being a compelling character himself. His important role is the effect that he has on Thesala's choice whether or not to steal the body or, uh, uh, and we haven't even mentioned that this is Dr. Uh, Mulder yet.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. I was getting there. I was getting there. I was going (laughs) to wait until she got cast. All right, so just to get into a little bit more about uh, what happened here with John T. Uh, Dugan and uh, good old Gene Roddenberry... Ridenberry knew this would go to the Writer's Guild Arbitration Board. He was confident that they would see things his way, but John T. Dugan was also confident they would see things his way. He writes, I was staggered at this development, and when the script went into arbitration by a jury of my peers, it came back as written by John T. Dugan. So Gene had tried to claim a credit that he was not entitled to, says Dugan. Nearly four and a half decades later, Gene Roddenberry's son says, uh, my father was not a perfect man. I watched him rewrite scripts, and he would rewrite everything. So I can feel empathy for the writers who, uh, who he rewrote. But it was his prerogative, says Rod. It was his show. They had a right to complain about that, of course. The only stories that do bother me are when it came to stealing credit and whether my father deserved it or not and all those sorts of things. I don't think my father was evil where he went out to try and steal credit from people. But when he made his contributions, he decided he would put his name on it and felt it should be there. Okay. Despite all of this fighting, Dugan decided he did not want his name associated with the material. In his rewrite, Ronberry, a man who rebelled against organized religion, had Sargon tell his wife that they would not allow themselves to exist in a human world and should therefore depart into oblivion. Says Dugan. This line totally went against my philosophy and cosmology. I did not want to be associated with it. This oblivion idea was Ronberry's philosophy, not mine. My philosophy was that These entities would exist as spirits for eternity, but they would not have bodies. That might be a small thing, but I have a reputation and a philosophy, and everybody who knows me and what I stand for, I certainly don't stand for oblivion in the afterlife. So I use my pseudonym. When you write a script, you expect to have your world...
0: uh, uh, when When you write a script, you expect it to express your worldview
1: and not have it changed by a producer exactly
0: well here's the thing is that like roddenberry did not see himself as a producer right i mean you know today we have a word for that kind of dude we call him a showrunner yeah so
1: uh so the script is finalized and we are off to shoot it but what worried the production crew the most was finding an actor a powerhouse actress that they knew could play Thalassa, right? Enter now, Dinah Muldar. Checkers, of course, know her as uh, Dr. Pulaski from season two of The Next Generation, which had its own problems with her, but we'll get to that in like 20 years whenever we get to the next generation. (laughs) So uh, Dinah Muldar was 29 at this point. This was only her third year performing before the camera where she had quickly become an in-demand actress being featured prominently in episodes of Dr. Kildare and I Spy and Gunsmoke.
0: Who's the actress who did uh, Murder She Wrote?
1: Angela Lansbury.
0: Yeah, she's got an Angela Lansbury vibe. Uh-huh. And I can I could see where she'd be the Angela Lansbury for TV when Angela Lansbury was still making a lot of movies.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And doing a lot of theater, of course. She also, you know, this is the other thing about Diana Moldar is like she has a very specific voice. Like you just hear her talk and you're like, that's Dr. Pulaski, all right. Yep. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Uh, so Ralph Sineski had worked with Diana Moldar several times. He said, uh, I had done about five or six shows with her and suggested uh, her for a return to tomorrow. And of course, they loved her. She's such a beautiful lady and such a good and solid actress. Along with being Scotty. James Doohan provided Sargon's voice when uh, not in the body of Kurt. Bill Blackburn was one of their, like, extra guys. He was the one who played the rabbit in Shore Leave.
0: The great thing about, you know, using uh, Doohan for all these voices is that we don't hear his real voice. Right. Like, he's doing a voice when he's Scotty. So, like, his (laughs) regular voice is kind of still a mystery. I mean, unless you've seen him in interviews. But... It allows him to then do other voices. And I, without knowledge of the, the original voice, you know, we're used to his Scotty voice, and then he does some other voice, you don't go, oh, wait a minute, that's James Doohan. Right. Instead, you're like, okay, it's Sargon, I'm buying it.
1: Well, since we're talking about it, during post-production, Sineski had recorded James Doohan doing the voice of Sargon uh, from whenever we didn't hear it emitting from Kirk's mouth. It was stilted and bombastic, but not lack, but not due to lack of skill or to judgment on the part of Duhan. Sineski explained that Duhan had patterned his approach to match that is being delivered by Shatner later in the episode. <laughs> and then, of course, there was all this pompous dialogue in the script assigned to the character of Sargon How would
0: you read Sargon? I mean, look at the the lines he's been given. <laughs> exactly,
1: know? exactly. That's what it says. And then, of course, there was the pompous dialogue in the script assigned to the character of Sargon. <laughs> During Doohan's early acting career, he had appeared in more than 4000 radio programs, a medium where the voice was the only means an actor had to express his performance and Duhan had become a master, he says. Uh, Bill Blackburn, he was the actor who had uh, played the rabbit in Shore Leave. Now he's playing the android that lies on the table, which is something I didn't even know that they had. Right. I didn't even know that there was actually somebody in there. But uh, apparently they put all the makeup and sludge and stuff all over him so that he could lie there. And they put that on at, like, starting at, like, 7 in the morning. And so about 9 o'clock, they decide that, hey, we're going to uh, shoot this later in the day. Now, this is one of those makeup jobs, like the girl in Goldfinger, where they had to, like, leave, like, parts of their, like, back breathable so that they didn't suffocate. You know, it was one of those situations. But, of course, now they're going to push this thing later on in the day.
0: Since you brought up Bond, let's try this out. I am shotgun. It is the energy of my thoughts which has touched your instruments and directed you here. Now, with this closer distance, I can speak to you at last. Yeah, that sounds perfect. <laughs> okay.
1: Now you're going to make me fall out and do that dialogue.
0: <laughs> yeah, so I mean, you you have to read it in that kind of bombastic tone. Cause
1: yes, exactly.
0: <laughs> but I love like that he also spot, had been, like, it's hilarious. Yeah.
1: I love, too, that he had to, like, voice match it with Shatner, like, that, just, in some ways. That just makes me laugh. Stealing your idea. <laughs> I'm afraid to do this voice now. <laughs> I really wanted to do Pacino. Give me all you got. Give me all you got. <clears throat> I am Sargon. It's the energy of my thoughts which with has touched your instruments and directed you here. Now, with this closing distance, I can speak to you at last. <laughs> but this is the thing too is like as you said bombastic and pompous right like you couldn't even do like a like a british like bbc i am sargon it is the energy of my thoughts which has touched your instruments and directed you here now this is a closer distance i can speak to you at last and now sport
0: (laughs) I am as dead as my planet. Does that frighten you, James Kirk? For if it does, let you, if you let what is left of me perish, then all of you, my children, all of mankind, shall perish too. Beautiful. It's beautiful.
1: <laughs> and I'm as dead as my planet. <laughs> that frightened you, James Kirk. <laughs> Even sure who that is, but I was like, what else is bombastic but absolutely ridiculous for the voice of Sargon?
0: Yeah, so you try to imagine like Apollo doing these lines, right? Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And even he wasn't quite as bombastic as like these lines are written. Yeah. So I mean he'd be pushing it. And he he had that problem. He's like reading this, going, How do I do this? Because of course he was like a LA San Diego theater guy. And he thought reading Apollo was difficult. Yeah, right. I think I think these lines would be like, I am as dead as my planet. Does that. And there you go. You're like in Bombast Land.
1: Yep. All right. So uh, poor Bill Blackburn here. So I'm standing there with this stuff all over me, and all of a sudden they decide they want to do the scene later. And this is like 9 a.m., and later meant like really later, like at the end of the day. So I'm finally doing this damn thing. I got this stuff all over me. I couldn't even move my face because it would have, because the makeup would have cracked. So finally, they say, lie down. Spock's going to make this speech, and can you hold your breath? Well, I'm a sp- swimmer. And I can hold my breath for two minutes, but I didn't realize how long this speech was. And I'm lying there and I'm lying there and I'm holding my breath and Leonard is droning on and on and on. And finally, they let me go. Poor guy. Robert Sineski goes on to talk about this episode by saying, Bill Shatner was always competent, except in Return to Tomorrow. I thought that it was so badly acted. It was just a strange show, and in retrospect, I think it was one of those shows that you could read as science fiction, but you couldn't really act it. Right. Leonard is okay, because his, pro- his whole approach had a little more depth than Shatner's did. And Diana Muldar, who, of course, I had worked with before and is so much better and exciting in a later episode. Is there no truth in beauty? The material was almost self-defeating. It wasn't Roddenberry's best work. And I'll say this, too and this is Sineski, remember, that if Gene Kuhn was still there, that this show might have been able to work. Kuhn wrote better dialogue than Roddenberry. The aliens really weren't characters, they were just archetypes.
0: Yeah, so, I mean, understand- that may, that may be true, but like, everything that we had gotten from the beginning about how this was, like, uh, too intellectual... I mean, if Roddenberry's thinking it's too intellectual, right? Right. You could totally imagine how, you know maybe with his limited dialogue stuff, he made it this, but he must have been starting in a place that was pretty crazy.
1: Right. Sineski also goes on to say that he likes Leonard's performance as this totally evil man. He says that uh, he was charmingly played against the evil. This is something which I always strongly believe. Charming evil is much more effective. Well, that's it. That's all I got for this episode. Uh, you ready to uh, get to it here? I am indeed. Captain's log, starting.
0: It's five-year mission.
1: So this episode opens up with the fanfare. The dun 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 dun. Sulu is back! Hooray! Uh, George Takei was back. He later recalls, "I had returned to Los Angeles." felt heartsick and resentful. These scripts that I had, that I had taken with me to Georgia had all been filmed. These lines that I had so anxiously committed to memory had already been spoken by somebody else. So, the show that I returned for was titled "Return to Tomorrow." Tomorrow, indeed, it was like returning to the dinner table after briefly excusing myself, only to find my meal cold and half eaten by somebody else. Sorry, George. Anyway, we find that there's a signal that's not a signal at the same time attempting to attract their attention. Uh, Kirk goes to Spock and asks, like, uh, hey, can you figure out what this is? And the Vulcan says, not even a Vulcan can know the unknown. They find themselves suddenly near an Earth-like planet, except that it's completely unearth-like due to its lack of atmosphere, and it's much older than Earth.
0: So in later uh, iterations of Star Trek, he would not have called this a class M planet.
1: Right. They would have described it, you
0: know, in terms of it being, you know, a dead planet.
1: Yeah. Well, it's so weird that they call it earth. Like, except for these two things that make earth, earth. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Atmosphere. Oh my gosh. So, uh, then this voice announces out of nowhere that all their questions will be answered. Zargon here introduces himself and reveals that he is just as dead as the
0: planet. And, you know, they could have alluded to its Earth-likeness by saying, you know, here we have a, uh, I don't, this, uh, you know, messed up planet. Let's see. Uh, I'm going to take up some time here.
1: Planet. Play some odd music.
0: Ba, 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 ba. Yeah, it could be Class H. Right? Generally uninhabitable.
1: Mm-hmm. So what are the rankings on a, uh, on a planet?
0: Uh, so there's Class M, terrestrial. Right. Class L, which is marginally habitable. It's got vegetation but no animal life. But, like, the atmosphere isn't, you know, it's one yeah. of these where they can breathe. They can beam down, but they can't stay for very long because they'll get sick unless right. they bring breathing gear and other kinds of. It's also possible gravity could be messed up. Oh, too okay. high, too low. Class K is habitable as long as pressure domes are used. So this would be like Mars. Yeah. Um, a gas giant. uh, A planetoid or moon with with no atmosphere. Okay. And, uh, class H, generally uninhabitable. Hmm. And then, you know, sometimes you get things like, uh, you know, it's, uh, radioactive or, you know, toxic atmosphere. Hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, stuff like Venus, you know, sometimes ends up in a different... Sometimes it's, it's going to be a class H, other times um, they'll attach some other letter to it for stuff like that. But, you know, they could have said it's, uh, you know, it's, it's the right distance from the, the star, you know, for, you know, temperatures that would produce liquid water... And you got a, a reasonable gravity for Earth-like, uh, you know... Or phenomenon. that it was a
1: former class and planet.
0: But this is a dead world. Bum, yep. bum, bum! Exactly. Because we did get a bum, bum, bum early on.
1: <laughs> sure did. So Zargon then asks them to come visit him on the planet. Kirk says, is this a demand, or do we have a choice? You have a choice, but if you leave, what is left of me to perish then all of mankind will perish too dun 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 credits back at it
0: here we get a captain's log
1: spock has found this little chamber a hundred miles beneath the surface
0: surface we get this bizarre and mostly dropped explanation for why they're here right right and they could have replaced all that they could have gone full egyptian right Mm -hmm. so we've uh, we've arrived at planet XYZ. Uh, you know, long-range scans have determined that it's, uh, an, you know, got an Earth-like distance from the sun, so, you know, perhaps there's water. But upon arriving here, we find that it's totally uninhabitable, despite having, you know, uh, you know, a size and composition that would be roughly Earth-like. Why is there no, you know, no water and atmosphere? Yeah. So we beam down. We find this, you know, cavern, the... The transporter is misdirected by Sargon, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And you you basically, we find the, in a sense, we're tomb raiders, right, in the beginning. And we yeah. find the mummy, Sargon and Thalassa and, and Enoch. And, you know, that would be how we get here. It, it's much more plausible that they're doing a survey of a world that's mysteriously not as Earth-like as it ought to be, given it's... Distance from the sun and its gravity. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, they hear the story. Oh, it's an ancient planet and it long ago it destroyed itself. And then you're like, ooh. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, they, they loved, uh, you know, frightening us with, you know, the, the nuclear weapons are so dangerous. If, if yep. you know, all it takes is a mistake and, and this happens. Exactly. It's a tomb world.
1: Uh, The crew is worried that they won't be able to beam down into their little chamber, but Zargon assures us he will. Kirk wants McCoy to go down, but not Spock. But Spock wants to see it. But the captain needs somebody to stay on the ship. And then the power goes out. On the other hand, maybe he wants you there. And the power comes back on. Well, Mr. Spock, I guess he'll be joining us.
0: Here's a better list of Star Trek classifications. Okay, hit me. Although, again, these, you know, as we've seen in this particular example where they call this dead world an M-class planet, these are in motion. So, Class A, B, and C, typically small, young planets whose class depends on the age and solidity of their cores. Examples include Gothos, Class A, Mercury, Class B, and Pluto, Class C. Class Hmm. D objects are planetoids, such as asteroids and some moons, Regula, the side of the underground second stage of the Genesis experiment in Star Trek II is a class D planetoid, as is the Klingon Gulag moon, Rurapentha. Hmm. E, F, and G, typically proto Earth sized planets whose class depends on their age and the solidity of their cores. So here I'm thinking more volcanism, earlier, younger planets. Right. Uh, H appear to be harsh desert worlds. Planet Tau Sigma 5. Um, which shows up in uh, the Enterprise uh, or the Next Generation episode. Instance of Command was designated a Class H world. I is supergiants, gas planets. Uh, Gas giants is J. Uh, So uh, Jupiter, Saturn would be examples. Class Mm -hmm. K, bearing worlds with no life. They do not possess breathable atmospheres, but have a reasonable, tolerable gravity. Mars could be colonized with atmospheric domes through terraforming that could be made into Class M worlds. In the original i Mud*, the planet um, Mud was designated in dialogue as Class K. Mm. Class L worlds are barely habitable with primitive ecosystems in the Chase. The planet Indri-8 is indicated in dialogue as Class L. In the 37s, the planet on which Amelia Earhart and others are stranded is a Class L planet. In the Muse, in which uh, Belenotaurus shuttle crash is described as a Class L. It supports Bronze Age humanoid life. Uh, class M is Earth like. Uh, it's explained in universes, uh, Minchara being a Vulcan word that describes happy planets. Vulcan, Cardassian Prime, Bejor, Beta Z, Romulus, Ferengadar, Onos. Uh, class N is Venus. These are the ones with uh, highly acidic atmospheres. O and P are almost completely covered with water in the case of O, ocean. And P uh, is ice. Class Q are continually changing environments caused by peculiar orbits or an orbit around a valuable uh, variable output star. Uh, R is a rogue planetary body. We, we see a couple of these in the original series. Um, class S is a gas giant smaller than a class T but larger than a class J. T is the largest of the class giants. Uh, Y, X, and Z are all demon planets. The surfaces do not fall into any other recognizable category. Such rules are unusually hostile and lethal to human life. If life forms develop on these worlds, they may take on bizarre forms like living crystal or rock. uh, Liquid or gaseous physical states or incorporeal, dimensional, or energy-based states. Class Y planets include the Tholian homeworld the silver blood planet discovered by Voyager in the Delta Quadrant in the episode Demon and the homeworld of the incorporeal Medusans so there's our uh, Star Trek planet system
1: love it as we arrive in the transporter room we meet Anne Mulhall from Astrobiology we get this
0: like and I have a feeling that they or it could destroy us just standing here if they or it wanted to they or it. For you.
1: Doctor Anne Mohol, astrobiology. Well, I was ordered to report here for landing party duty. Sweeping music that comes in here. Now I know that you don't normally hear the music in the episodes.
0: I don't, and I did not hear her music.
1: <laughs> yes. Well, it's awful. And I think, <clears throat> I think that the music in this is, this episode's crazy. It's like, to me, it felt very like in some ways ahead of its time, because it felt like music from the love boat is what it felt like to me. Like just these <laughs> like sweeping semi-romantic, you know, TV themes that's what it sounds like the whole episode to me. It's, uh, it's, it's not great. It felt, the whole, all of the music felt very like late 70s, early 80s TV to me.
0: And why was there a purser and a bartender on the bridge?
1: Right, yeah, it was weird. <laughs> Gomer was there. It was so strange. <laughs> or gopher. Gopher. Yeah, yeah Gomer Pyle. Gopher. <laughs> uh, anyway, as they uh, beam down, the guards are left behind so that only our guys and Anna are left down there. The crew does their due diligence, they check the air quality, they look at the alloys in the wall, they move into this next room, and they find this big glowing ball. And it's where Zarkon is contained. Part of this set, of course, reminds me of what happened in Gamesters, right? Where they were just the brains in the thing. That was one thing that they were actually actively trying to get away from. But, uh, you know, but there you go. And then uh, also this set looks like anytime they're ever in a cave, which includes the Devil in the Dark, or also the end of Gamesters as well, this... There's very probably reused
0: walls in this episode. Absolutely. Uh, And, you know, they're probably used for, like, if we were to go back and watch, you know, westerns that involve a mine or, you know, other kinds of, uh, you know, movies that have caves or whatever, I think we'd be like, oh, look, (laughs) that's where whatever happened.
1: Probably right. Uh, As they scan the balls, uh, all... uh, Spock and find is pure energy. Pure energy. Pure energy. My children. I
0: believe it was sampled a few times, was it not? Exactly.
1: I think it was. Uh,
0: it is possible. You
1: are our descendants. Adam and Eve could have been uh, two of our travelers. This would explain parts of Vulcan prehistory, we find out. Records were lost, though, he says, in the cataclysmic disaster that we brought on ourselves. One day, our minds became so powerful, we thought we were gods. Kirk goes back to, uh, you said you needed our help? What is it that you wish? And then, Zarkon, without asking, puts himself into Kirk's body. Dun-dun-dun... But then Bones pulls a phaser. Spock asks, and what do you propose to do? Bones says, that's still Jim's body. Exactly. Going to kill Jim's body? What would happen to Jim? We then see Zarkon enjoying the breathing and the smelling and the feeling. It's like the opposite of our characters from last week's episode, right? Who, it was too much for them. I also ask myself, is this too much Shatner in this episode, or in this uh, scene right here? Is there too much of him just doing a little bit too much enjoying the sensations? I I guess I don't know. It's hard to say. I don't know how anybody would act suddenly, like, feeling something 100,000 years later, but
0: I don't know. It seems like a lot. You know, we also don't know, like, what kind of direction they're given or, you know, what kind of... uh... Because you know, later on, we get a lot of you got to wear Shatner out to get a good performance out of him. <laughs>
1: yes, exactly.
0: He's, he's too. But you know, this is also much earlier in his career. Yeah. So it's you know, I don't know. Yeah, I'm I'm perfectly know. willing to believe he was given, like pushed in bad directions that that uh, encouraged like some of his goofiness uh-huh. in terms of uh, you know being a ham and chewing up the scenery and stuff like that. He's not always given the best material to work with.
1: That is also true, as we've said about this episode. Also, we got some more of that weird music here. Uh, I don't feel like it's informing how we should feel, because, right, that's what we hear a lot about, like, what music should be doing in the background. You know, because it, this it, music is sort of, like, magical or extraordinary, right? but it's like that's not really what's happening in this scene.
0: It's... it's... That is still Jim's body.
1: You know, it should be something a little more grounded in human interaction or something. I don't know.
0: So, of course, the new Picard series is coming out. And Patrick Stewart had the opposite experience, right? Right. So he he was a, a longtime veteran. Um, you know, somebody who arguably was, you know, in his in his peak years, his prime, right? Right. And he had difficulty acclimating to star trek it took his castmates who were um not as experienced not as well developed as actors who were you know in a lot of ways just uh you know people of the right age to play their parts you know they didn't have these long pedigrees of you know acting excellence and you know they were goofing around and having fun and and he had uh Kind of break down some of his reserve to to like fit the role better, right? Because he right, was a little right, stiff right. in the beginning. Uh, whereas, you know, Shatner, who does have a uh, Shakespearean background, it wasn't as long. He wasn't as steeped in being a serious actor and playing, you know, these you know serious parts. I he he'd been doing it for you know ten years as opposed to, uh, you know, Patrick Stewart. So I think you, you do get, like, what does the, you know, there's that scene in, uh, uh, is it Naked Gun? The one where he's uh, playing an umpire, undercover uh-huh. undercovers an umpire, and yeah. he starts calling a strike, and the crowd goes wild because he's in the home team, right? And yeah. then he starts calling more strikes because it makes the crowd go, go wild. Yes. And you do have, you know, these kinds of, you know, wh- how are your incentives working? Where's your feedback coming from?
1: Yeah. No, that's fair. Yeah, and if all he's hearing is, it's like, well, he's our captain. Like he's the, he's our guy. He's our main actor. He's the guy we gotta, and, like, and, everything's you know, gotta resolve around him.
0: Give us more. And this is an alien. Give us more, you know, expression of, you know, feeling your body and your face and your hands and stretching your arms and, you know. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. No, no, give us more! Give us more! Okay! Bigger, bigger! Yeah. Uh,
1: So they all read their tricorders. Kirk has this extra heart rate and a higher body temperature than he's supposed to have. And then Zarkon tells them that they need Kirk and Anne's body so that they may live again! Commercial. I feel like that's kind of a fake cliffhanger, because that's not actually... (laughs) Yes, I mean they are do need the bodies to live again, but it's not just because they were taking over the bodies. Anyway, we find out that there are two more balls in existence, the uh Felicia, his wife. Uh his receptacle was put in a different room so that he could search the heavens and so that he could find our ship. It's as if they have some kind of crazy powers or something. Hmm. So you okay. could steal our bodies? Yeah. Steal, Sargon says. Lend us your bodies so that we may build humanoid robots. Our methods, our skills are beyond your ability. There's no way that you could build them for, uh, build them for us. Kirk is now sweating. And so they uh, take him back into the first room. And Kirk is returned to his own body. And his body, too, according to Tricorders, is back to normal. Kirk says that when we exchanged, we were one, for an instance. And I know what he is, and I know what he wants, and I don't fear him.
0: So, you know, they could have... This feels too short, right? Okay. So we've had... This is a show that accepts the idea of the Vul- Vulcan mind meld. Right. Right? And so he could have Which, elaborated... by the way, is
1: absent in this, mo- in this episode. Notice. So he
0: could have elaborated a little bit. You know, saying... Uh... "And has, I don't know, has he melded with Spock yet?
1: No, I don't think so.
0: Yeah. But, you know, even Spock could have uh, said something like, in a Vulcan mind meld, one comes to know the inner thoughts and motivations of, you know, the person that you have joined with. Yes. Yeah. That's what I felt. You know, this yeah, kind of yeah, thing, yeah, right? yeah, something like that. And you'd be like, oh. So he's trusting him because he, he knows him. I've seen it from the inside. Okay, I get it. You know, as opposed to this little teaser piece that we've gotten and you have to assume the rest.
1: Yes. Although, like I said, it's part of what makes this episode good is the like crazy, you know, are they or aren't they a good people? And should we believe them? And then at some point it becomes, okay, that's two against one now and da 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 Sargon Sargon allows them to go back to the ship and debate whether or not they should allow them to switch bodies or not. At this point, I agree with Scott, who says, They're going to what? Quite a lengthy briefing room scene here as we are debating the ins and outs. All the while, we have a very sassy McCoy snarking from the side. Some of his lines there are awesome. For instance, A simple transference, their minds and ours. Yeah, quite simple. Happens every day, says McCoy. Uh, Shad has a couple of really funny moments in this uh, scene. Uh, You'll be working with them. I mean, with us. I mean, they will be inside us and we'll be... (laughs) That little thing there was kind of funny the way he uh, did that. With their knowledge, medical advances, vessels this size, with engines the size of walnuts. The size of walnuts, you say, says Scott. Anne is on board. She's a scientist. She wants to know what it's like. Scott now wants to be involved because he wants to uh, know what a walnut-sized engine will look like. But McCoy still wants to know why. You gotta tell me why. And then we get that awesome, wonderful Kirk speech. They used to say if a man could fly, he'd have wings. But he did fly. He discovered he had to. Do you wish that their first mission to Apollo hadn't reached the moon? Or that we hadn't gone to Mars? Then to the nearest star,
0: risk,
1: risk. That is our business.
0: It's a great speech. It is a great speech. And of course, if you think about the timing, uh, we had just had Apollo 1, you know, the disaster with the fire and the three dead astronauts. Right. And so in, in some ways, this speech is... I mean, he's presuming they go to the moon with Apollo, right? Yeah. And... His speeches, uh, you know, can be interpreted as much to the Apollo program as to, you know, just, just a good Kirk summation.
1: Uh, it's also what the show is about, right? Right. I mean, it's, you know, it's basically about why they're doing what they're doing to boldly go where no man has gone before. Uh, this speech is also important in that very silly movie, uh, Free Enterprise, the one where Shatner raps uh, the, uh, the speech from... Julius he, Caesar?
0: He does all of Julius Caesar and plays yeah. all the parts except for Calpurnia. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. Tears. Te- tears. 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 For Caesar. Lie, the evil that men do lives after them. The good is often turred with their
1: bones. So let it be with Caesar. The noble Brutus have told you Caesar was ambitious. If it were so, it was a grievous fault, and grievously had Caesar answered it. Here under leave of Brutus of the rest. For Brutus is an honorable man,
0: so are they all. All honorable men. Honorable men. Honorable men. This was a man. This was a man. No tears for Caesar. It is a great speech, the uh, the one he, he gives, Anthony's speech. Yes.
1: Don't cry Caesar. <laughs> Into the sick bay where the exchanges are made, Spock's New Brain new brain whoops yeah spock's new brain Enoch comes onto chapel which she enjoys because we know how she feels about spock uh then thalessa uh sees kirk
0: and, and she a little foreshadowing here
1: yes and he is happy and she is happy and then they kiss enoch is happy to be in such a great body and then the other two bodies collapse he is left to create a shock that will slow down their meta- uh slow down their metabolism Enoch then takes Chapel into the pharmacology lab where they prepare the hypos, 10 cc's every hour while the hosts are taken over. However, Chapel notices that one hypo does not contain the same formula as the one given to Kirk. He will die. So then Chapel is told to forget what she has noticed. So I wondered if this is a Vulcan mind trick, perhaps, here, because he puts his hand on her, or is it just his trick using his superpowers? It's hard to
0: say. Eh, six of one, half dozen of the other.
1: Right, exactly. Hinox says, Sargon would not let me keep this body, so I must kill your captain and Sargon. Wait, he just told her to forget what he's telling her, but then he's telling her again? Oh, I see why. Because we go to commercial. Back at it. Doctor's Log, start eight four seven six nine point one. We get our recap of the episode, as we always do. We cut to Hall and Kirk, inhabited by Thalesa and Sargon, in engineering, building the robots. She is remembering a time when they were by a lake, and what they smelled like, and what it felt like. Hinoch enters, watching this, and then reminds them of the cold, unfeeling android-like hands that they will soon be able to have, and uh, that they will not be able to feel or smell any of this. Sargon is just happy to know that his brain will live on and that they will be able to walk among those who live and help those who live. Suddenly then he starts to feel ill and thinks it's time for another eject- injection and leaves. Back in sickbay, Chapel feels like she was going to tell Bones something about the syringes, but can't seem to remember what it is. Thalesa now in Mohol's body has changed her hair. We know from the last episode what it means when a woman changes her hair. Scotty enters, delivering something to, to Thalesa. Enoch then enters, talking to Mac to Scotty of all people, and then he leaves. Enoch then takes this moment to offer a solution outside of the cold, unfeeling androids. And it's to keep the bodies of those who have given them. Thalesa says it's not possible, but then Enoch makes a move to make her feel something again, holding her hand uncomfortably. Thalesa does not agree though and says that she, uh, although she doesn't love the idea of ending up in the android body. Sarkon again, is not feeling well in the briefing room. Belisa then broaches the subjects of perhaps keeping the bodies, but Sarkon immediately says no. She then, trying to remind him what it feels like to feel, presses her body close to his, trying to show how much that they would be able to be intimate with bodies, unlike being inside the android. She then kisses him passionately, which, of course, gets his blood uh, blood pressure rising, and then, you know, he falls over. Luckily, Bones was moments away and rushes into the room. He's
0: dead, as
1: we go to commercial. Oh, no. Back at it. Doctor's log, 4740.2. Do I mark this as one death or two? Asks McCoy. Sarkon couldn't transfer his, his mind back into the receptacle. He was too far away. Is the captain dead? Is he still in the receptacle? In engineering, Hinoch finishes the android for Thalasa. There's nothing that, to stop you from going in, he says. It's all ready. Uh, Sarkon wants it that way. But then Thalesa refuses, saying, I can't live in that thing. Back in sick Day, Thalesa asks McCoy if she wants to save the captain. We have many powers Sarkon would not permit us to use. Oh, yeah, now we remember all those powers that they had from like a half an hour ago that we completely forgot about. Well, we're about to see them unleashed. Thalasa tells Bones that she wants to keep the body of Dr. Mulhall. She says she only wants to live in peace and will promise not to use her powers. I want you to keep silent, she says. If you do that, I will save your captain. I will not peddle flesh. I'm a physician, says McCoy. Compared to us, you're a medicine man. I could destroy you with a single thought. And then she uses a superpower on McCoy. Which she instantly regrets. The temptations of the living body are too great. Sargon was right, she says. And then the once thought dead mind of Sargon reappears via voice saying, I am pleased, my beloved. We find out that he has a power even Hina couldn't comprehend. Sargon has placed himself into the ship's computer. Chapel then enters, and Thalesa tells Bones to clear out, because Zargon's got a plan. Bones exits, but then instantly regrets it. Suddenly, the ship shudders. Bones calls for the bridge. But then, immediately, Chapel walks out, almost zombie like. He runs into the room, and Kirk is alive! And Thalesa has left Mulhall's body. Bones then looks down at the receptacles, they've been blown to smithereens. Spock was in one of those! You killed a loyal officer, he says. Kirk says that it was necessary. Spock is gone. We must kill the body. Bones, prepare a hypo of the deadliest and quickest thing known to Vulcans. Cut to the bridge. We see Uhura screaming, no! Kirk and the rest enter the bridge, only to be taken down immediately. No one has ever been overpowered this quickly since Mace and three other Jedi went to confront the Emperor. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that fast. It seems overwhelming as Bones tries to hypno him, but Hnoch stops him. He says, "I know every thought of everyone on the ship." He turns to the zombified Chapel and says, and tells her to take the hypo. She does it and looks like she's o- about to inject McCoy when suddenly she hypos Spock's body instead. Dun dun dun! Hnoch stands, realizing his mistake. Sargon has tricked him, and Spock's body collapses. He's dead. But he's not really dead. It was just a big trick uh, started by Sarkon. His mind had been inhabiting chapels all along the way. For once, we were together, says Chapel. Happy ending! Sargon then admits that the pull to use their power is too great and that they will have to dissolve into nothing.
0: Oblivion.
1: That's right. Sarkon asks for one more favor that he and Thalisa might once more have a minute, an intimate moment in Kirk and Mulhall's body. They agree. Oblivion together, she says, and then they kiss, and more of the love boat music swells.
0: While kiss- we'll be taking another run so while kissing oh. okay
1: <laughs> while kissing there's so much of it in this episode anyway <laughs> while kissing they leave Kirk and Mulhall's bodies and then it gives this fun awkward moment between these two characters who are left kissing with each other and we hear the fanfare again as we edit two credits the end Roddenberry was so pleased by his own work with this script for *Return to Tomorrow* that he chose it to represent *Star Trek* for consideration at this year's Writers Guild Award, above other scripts. In- yes, above other scripts, including *A Time or *Metamorphosis*, or *Journey to Babel*. The yeah, guild wanting a lot pos- better,
0: a lot better episodes,
1: right? The Guild, wanting to acknowledge the excellent writing being done at Star Trek as it had the previous year with The City Edge of Forever, gave the script an awards nomination in the category for Best Written Dramatic Episode, even though it was clearly not the best from season two. But Roddenberry's attempt to pay tribute to himself backfires, says Cushman. With the decision coming down from the arbitration board giving full credit to the script to Dugan, the prestigious nomination went to an unknown John Kingsbridge. Regardless, Return to Tomorrow did not win. Dugan, in 1992, was preparing a lawsuit against Paramount and Gene Roddenberry when he was then diagnosed with cancer. His last word on the subject was, in the light of the fact that I have a limited period left, time left, I agreed to settle. So Paramount sent me a nice big check. In the ratings, for the first half hour, Star Trek was locked in at its number two position, way ahead of the Winter Olympics broadcast from ABC. From nine to nine thirty, it actually won the time slot, although just slightly ahead of the CBS movie, which was the 1964 World War II drama, The Secret in Beijing, starring Mickey Rooney. Just a two-month is a World War II drama starring Mickey Rooney. And the Olympics was in third place. Well, that's all I got on this episode. Uh, anything else you want to hit, sir?
0: No, I think uh, I think we've hit it.
1: Yeah, we talked for a long time. Way longer than I thought. I did have like 12 pages of notes, though. So So, uh, next up, we've got Patterns of the Force. I read this description on Amazon, which said that this is the third book in the Curse on Knights uh, trilogy. After the Empire's bloody purge, uh, one lone Jedi knight still... Oh, that's Patterns of the Force. Sorry. This is (laughs) Patterns of Force. Sorry, Patterns of Force. Uh, This is what the description in the TV guide at the time was saying. Captain Kirk and Mr. Spock are captured on a warlike planet with a Nazi type regime while searching for a cultural observer from whom nothing had been heard for five years. Dun, dun, dun. Star Trek Color Cast on Friday, February 16th. Color Cast. Because it was still important in the 60s to have color TV.
0: Well, how long is. Uh, uh, Andy Grip is still black and white. Wasn't it to like sixty nine or some?
1: Well, I suspect, and I don't know this for sure, but I suspect that's because they were trying to give it an old timey feel, and so that they right. kept it in black and white. And then it wasn't until Return to Mayberry, where they—wasn't uh, that what it was? Return to Mayberry, or what was the Mayberry RFD? I don't remember what the There's another yeah, Mayberry.
0: Mayberry RFD. Okay. It's like a, It's like the last season in which. Andy Taylor had moved away or...
1: Yeah, he wasn't even there anymore, but the show was still going on.
0: Yeah, so, uh... Uh... Barney Fife had left because of the way he had structured his contract. Uh Uh-huh. His contract had had expired at, like, after five years or something. And because of the way the show was at some point he thought that maybe they wouldn't get picked up and he got offered a movie contract and you know because he thought well it's going to end anyway i'll go ahead and say yes to this other thing and so he wasn't on like the last two seasons Mm -hmm. and then uh andy didn't do it
1: Well, so this doesn't 100% answer our question, but CBS aired, it was on the air from 1960 until 1968, with a total of 249 episodes spanning over eight seasons, 159 of them in black and white, and 90 of them in color.
0: That's a lot of episodes, 90? Yeah. It's more than the total number of Star Trek episodes. Just don't know when uh, it became color. Sounds like the last four seasons.
1: All right, so I guess, yeah. It's funny, I don't remember Andy Griffith in color, but shows what I know. I was only sick from home watching Andy Griffith, not on purpose for sure.
0: Part of our problem is we probably watched it on our black and white television in the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> that is also very possible,
1: very possible indeed. All right, well, let's wrap up this episode and get out of here. Uh, we already told you what next week's episode is, so that's great. As always, you can find us everywhere on the YouTubes, on uh, what is now Apple Podcasts. Uh, you can find us on Stitcher and uh, all sorts of other great places. So we uh, totally think that you should go find us there, because that is the place to find us. All the places you listen, well, we are probably are, that's for sure. So that's it. As always, my name is Matt, coming to you from Austin and from Planet Houston my brother Ken. Say goodbye, Ken.
0: Live long and prosper.
1: There we go. We'll see everybody next week.